This is the Yay. I'm Rich Clay. And Norman G. This is the Yay, where we talk about life in the theater and the theater of life. Yay! Well, anyone, oh, let, of course, we are sponsored by Central Work. We are so happy to be, have a sponsor. Central oh, Work. Oh, double yay, yes. The new play theater, reinventing theater one play at a time. Well, if anyone who's been a fan of our show, we've been doing this since 2017, you've heard us talk ad nauseum about a certain actress who has been around the Bay Area, and we finally have her on the show, Elizabeth Carter. How are you, Ms. Carter? <laughs> hello, hello. So happy to be here. Thank you all for... Uh... For inviting me. I didn't know I was a quite a frequent flyer on your show. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. You know, well, when you're when you're good, you know, your your reputation follows you. And so you are an actress, you are a singer, you are a director. Uh, I thought you were a producer, but you know, you've been around. I'm sure you've been She has produced. Lord knows. We have produced. Uh, full true. disclosure, Elizabeth and I ran the Oakland Public Theater. <laughs> She did plenty of producing. Yes. I guess I just don't think of myself quite as a producer, but I have had quite a bit of experience producing, yes. Yeah. Right. There's not nothing in the bank under the producing slot. No. <laughs> but I imagine you've pretty much touched every single, you've walked on pretty much every single stage uh, or close to it uh, in the Bay Area. Is that about right? Yeah, I have. I guess I've, I've been in the area for a long time, and so I've, um, had the opportunity to be in a lot of spaces, small and large, um, in lots of different shows. I think I have a 20 plus, you know, theater year theater career here in the Bay Area. So that means that, um, yeah, I've tried a lot of things. I've done some really bad theater and I've done some really fantastic theater too. That's great. We, we love to talk about that. Norman, as I begin uh, every podcast, uh, how was your week? I don't know. I, I'm I'm an old man who might have cancer. That's that's how my week has been. Oh no! I have been doing uh, UCSF standardized patient stuff all week, from eight in the morning till four in the afternoon, Monday through Friday, and we start back up again next week, talking to medical students, and they have to they gotta say the c word. I need to get them to say the c word. My character is afraid that he has cancer, so but he doesn't want to say it. So and they keep asking, so is there anything else that you're concerned about? Is there anything else? And I'm like, uh, I'm hoping nothing uh, more serious is oh, going on. Are they, <laughs> are, they trained, are they trained to not say the C word, to not freak out the patient? No, it's not that they're trained to. It's human. You don't say to somebody, oh, wow, your nose is all messed up. You, you talk around things, right? That's just natural. Mm -hmm. um, but for medical people, especially when somebody has a condition, a lot of times we're afraid of having a condition, so we don't want to say it. It is their job to figure out how to open that conversation. On the other end of the spectrum, don't just jump out, well, you know, first thing that I see when I hear all this, you're coughing up blood, is I'm just wondering, I'm worried that you might have cancer. I had a couple of them said that to me this week, and one day this guy put me in tears because I was like, I, it just came out of nowhere. I felt like he didn't prep it at all. Bam, cancer. I was like, oh. Wow. Okay. And I did. I finished the interview in tears. I was like, oh, damn. Now that is great acting. No, you, you, almost had, you almost had to be afraid. I thought you, Norman G, may have had cancer. No, no. John, no. Uh, JB. JB has, see, acting. JB has, um, he's been coughing up blood for about a month. Mm. And he's a 35-year smoker, two-pack-a-day smoker. Mm. Oh, wow. But, you know, when they asked him if he thought about uh, quitting, well, you know, my daughter always mentions it. 
<laughs> I love his character. He's a lot of fun. That's funny. You know, it's funny just mentioning that. I remember as a kid, I mean, of course, I was a, um, a latchkey kid and in the 80s or whatever. I mean, my dad had me run into the store to get him a pack of pell-mell reds and all that stuff. And during yeah. Christmas time, I'll get him. You could buy like a pack, a, like 20, tw a cart, 20 packs of cigarettes. And I did this in the name of love. And I'm like, oh, my God, what was I even doing? But yeah, because we all did. Those when we first things. moved to California, I was nine, and my aunt moved out a couple of years later, and we went to the store, and she gives me some money, the way she had always done, and said, go in and get me a pack of cigarettes. So I was like, I knew something was wrong, but I couldn't figure it out, and I'm standing there, and I said, can I get a pack of those? And the guy's like, you can't buy cigarettes. And I'm like, well, why not? You're underage. Well, it's not for me. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the other thing this week, if you saw it on Facebook, uh, we redid our bathroom. So I'm going to take a shower after we finish this. I've had three, two or three showers in the last three weeks. Um, we go up to my mother-in-law's house and we take showers. Uh, I can't wait to get back. And our bathroom is gorgeous. Mara is up there right now putting in the final shelf and it looks fantastic. So those are that's been the week. <laughs> Nice. Very, very nice. When I think of, I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to bathrooms and showers. I mean, you know, when I get a new place, uh, luckily I won't have to move for a while, but always check out, you know, I love a good shower head and just, you know, how nice and clean and modern bathrooms are. I don't really care about living rooms or dining rooms, but mm. uh, I, I like a nice bathroom, but you know, that's just me. Well, we got new tile, new shower. Right on. You know, it's a new paint job, new mirror. Mm -hmm. And she's Elizabeth, putting up new shelves right now. Elizabeth, let me ask you a question. How are you doing in the age of COVID-19 and how are you just functioning? Woo! Um, well, I'll just say it is a challenge. Um, I walk every day, so that's like kind of been my like, I've really gotten in the habit of walking, which is really good because I used to always love doing that. Um, but I have to because I probably go someplace once a week. I leave my, I, I walk in my neighborhood. Um, but I don't really go anywhere anymore. Um, I was joking that I love shoes and I love sandals. I love summer, like my favorite time of year. And I'm not wearing shoes because we don't wear shoes in the house. So like all of my shoes, and I said, I'm kind of missing my shoes. That was really strange to say, right? But I'm, I'm actually missing my shoes. Uh, um, and, and as Norman knows, I like to get dressed up sometimes. I love summer clothes. I'm in my house all the time. Like, you know, where am I going? Right. We do yeah. have a garden. And so like, I've been out there, but I also have a nine-year-old. And so we're all, and my wife is working at home. So mm -hmm. we're all kind of like tied up in there um, all the time. And so, you know, it's hard. It's hard. I have a nine-year-old who wants to be like outside and playing with his right. friends. And, you know, that's heartbreaking, man. That's heartbreaking. Mara was asking, because I said, she said, and is Elaine working at home? I said, if she is, I hope that means the other folks are getting out of the house, because that's got to be distracting yeah, <laughs> to have y'all really. running around. <laughs> She's kind of amazing. Like she's able to focus and, and do the work. And, you know, we don't have a huge place, you know, we don't have a huge house, but we figured it out. Um, I am right now at what I call my desklet. 
Yeah. Desklet is, you know, made so that I could uh, direct from home and have a space where I could look outside of a window so I don't mm. go crazy looking at a computer screen. Um, but yeah, it's it's crazy. And um, I also teach. You're so overlooking the backyard? I'm overlooking the backyard. Oh, nice. Um, so I get to see like trees and there's hummingbirds outside my window. So they keep me happy. And and I have my, I'm sitting in my, um, my father's uh, Morris chair, which is this like antique chair that has a bar that moves down. Oh, nice. Uh, in like recline it's you know it's an antique and i always had it in in um the bedroom and i wanted to use it but it ended up being a storage unit like uh -huh. often are so now i've like resurrected it and i sit in it for hours upon hours a day and i think about my dad and um and it's really nice so yeah. i think we've made um a decent quarantine life but i will not say that some people have slowed down, and I have ramped up. Right. Right on. So it's kind of the opposite. So when I hear people having massive amounts of time to read that book they've always read, wanted to read, or this theory on acting, or how we're going to rebuild and transform everything, I think, I'd like to do that too. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm, I'm in the midst of, of making. I'm in the midst of making right now. So right on. and that's the way it should be. You know, that's you can't let COVID nineteen slow you down. And I'm glad that, you know, they're theater companies. We had Jonathan Williams on last week and he talked about how Tabard Theater, instead of shutting down for COVID nineteen, they have a one man show and they have cameras that can actually stream to the audience. Yeah, they, they so, created a three camera setup. Nice. Yeah. Well, it's nice when you, have, you can have money like that. You have money in your right. property like that. I, there are a lot of companies that can't do that, but they've yeah. obviously, they've, they've negotiated to transition to, uh, right. to make the best out of a bad situation. Did you know about Tabard? Because I wasn't familiar with them, but they're in uh, whatever that plaza is, um, downtown San Jose. No, I didn't. So it sounds like they took over a space near where the, um, the rep used to be. Oh, okay. I, I get the, they're in that plaza. I think that's that plaza. So I'm like, I, I don't know anything about him, but uh, yeah, Jonathan Reese Williams is now the artistic director. And, wow. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. funny to watch how these things happen. <laughs> I know. It's like There's so much uh, shift going on right now, and a lot of people are taking a pause to really kind of be intentional about things. Some people are taking a pause because they, they can't afford to do anything else. And right. their budgets for their theater spaces are so huge that yeah. that's sucking up everything. Um, some people are really, you know, uh, and some people are figuring out super inventive ways. I just did a voiceover for um, Mime Troops next piece. Oh, nice. Um, which is coming out today. I think it's coming out today. The voiceover? Um, I mean, yeah, the, uh, the promo? Yeah, the, yeah, Tales of Resistance, and it's called Fear of the Dark. Um, and we, it's just a teeny tiny, I'm at the very, very end. They needed, you know, some extra voices. And so my son and I both did small parts. Oh, nice. Yeah, so we did a little VO in the house. Um, and I had one part, but it was pretty heavy. It's about a police officer kind of coming to a reckoning. And so I sent him out of the room for the part that I was doing. And then he was a little boy um asking for help and um and it was fun it was fun to do that with him mm -hmm. but they're doing radio plays so you know people are figuring out inventive ways to be in the space right um, yeah we almost had him in uh, maddie may yeah 
my gosh. Well, now I ended up getting one of my students from Richmond, which since it's a Richmond story was, you know, a nice fit, but he's now played Banquo in Mackers. Huh. Um in the summer camp, you know. Right. He did a summer camp because I was like I'm directing like 7 hours a day. Like what am I going to do? He needs something to do. Right. And so I put him in um, an online Shakespeare camp at SF Shakes, and and uh, he had a he had a good time. It was it was hard. It was a long day for a nine year old, mm -hmm. um, but he played Banquo, and he was he was very fierce. So <laughs> nice, very very cool. Yeah, I'm glad that you know it's. I feel bad for kids because uh, you know you think, oh wow, there's no school, or at least I don't have to go to a school. And I can, and of course, summertime is fun. I can go out and run around and, and play. Right. But I don't even know if kids can do that. I mean, I do see some kids. I live on Jack London Square. And oh, so yeah. I can see families, you know, taking kids out. And sometimes they'll throw the ball around. But, you know, mass gatherings. And when I was a kid, oh. I used to play football with, you know, a bunch of boys, you know, around the, the neighborhood. And you can't really do that. So I wonder what kids are doing. You know, it's really sad because my son has actually really gotten into football lately. He's very, very interested. I know nothing. Um, I am your typical theater student who just is like a theater person who's like, uh, football, what? They throw a ball. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, um, but he's really, really into it. And so we actually got him, did a an online one day class of the history of football because we were like anything to keep him like engaged and mm -hmm. doing something. But he loves he's very active he played soccer he's a really active kid so but we have a limit about how much time he can go outside because it's just not safe and we have a street where everybody and their brother runs walks many people unmasked right um which is you know frustrating he has one kid he can play with um and they play for about 45 minutes a day with each mm -hmm. other half an hour 45 minutes a day mm -hmm. outside riding bikes they have to stay distance. They both have to have masks on. Um, they can't throw the ball back and forth. It's just, it's, it's hard. It's hard. But that's his lifeline, you know. Sometimes right. I walk around and I see them sitting on the lawn and they're sitting apart and they're just talking about. They talk football stats. They talk um, about life and you know, and then they run around and you know, scream yeah. and stuff for a little I'll bit. But it's hard. I was reading an article, uh, I guess uh, some parent, I guess, you know, the kids, they play online games and, uh, you know, that sometimes they social media through the online games because you can right. have your, um, your headphones on and talk to uh, the friends that you're playing with. But you can also buy, I guess, upgrades and, and other things. And so this one kid, I think, ran up, God, it must have been, I think, $1,500 on their parents' what? account without oh, their parents yeah. knowing it. And of course, they, you know, blew a gasket and I was like, wow, you know, but um, there have been some current events. So John Lewis's uh, funeral happened just past oh. oh, my God. Barack Obama. I love Barack Obama, man. I listened yesterday. I just, I, sometimes I'm sitting on hold. They don't always have enough medical students for us. So I'm just sitting with my Zoom window open and I played his whole speech. Oh, yeah. That man's I mean, voice is just. Yeah. So calming. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And it, it reminds me of, you know, in the back in the day, you had politicians who you could remember by their words, by, you know, sound bites. And, you know, they gave right. great speeches, you know, whether it be Franklin D. Roosevelt or Kennedy, Ethan I. Ben Leonard, or, you know, um, ask not what your country can do for you. 
Right. And I just get the feeling that, you know, those days are gone or, you know, Barack Obama brought me back to that moment. And of course, he put Trump to task. He was like, listen, if this is the corner that you're going to paint yourself in, politics of hate, then, you know, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. So I'm so glad he, he brought that up. I really thought that one of the things was amazing as I was listening to his speech, because I also was listening, had just listened the day before to Michelle Obama's podcast. Yeah. Oh, uh-huh. Walking. And, um, and he says we more times than any president I think I've ever heard. Right. Instead of I. Yeah. Never, good point. He rarely ever says I. He almost always says we. And um, conversely with our current president, Mm-hmm. Who always says I. Right. And uh, whatever he's talking about. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's always in comparison to himself. Um, so, and I also was just, you know, I'm always mesmerized by Obama watching as an actor, too. Right. The way he crafts a speech and the way he delivers it and the way it pulls you in. Um, but there were also some other really amazing speakers that day. I watched, I watched several hours and um, there was a woman who was a staffer for John Lewis and just speaking about him in the office and his ethics and the and why people had been with him for 20 years. And um, and she was just so inspiring to me. Um, and you could feel like it was it was a presidential funeral. Yeah. Yeah. With the exception of, of the current president who right. you know, <laughs> deliberately decided not to show up. Yeah. Well, and, and Jimmy. Yeah, I, you know, I give a pass to Jimmy Carter because he's old and I'm wondering about his health because I haven't seen him in the news lately. Right. No, I, I was happy that he wasn't there for those reasons. Right. But I just thought how cool it would have been to have four presidents there mm-hmm. and no response at all from the current guy. I'm yeah. actually glad he wasn't there, to be honest with you, because I think yeah. he would wreck the mood. I, I think he would have. I think he would have yeah. put a pall over that. Yeah, no, and not even not even a tweet. I mean, not even any recognition. Like you know, we recognize the loss. The co- of rec- his tweet was, I, "I people, you know, why do people? Why are my numbers so low? Is it my personality?" I'm like, "This is a man's funeral, and that's all you got to say? Come on!" Yeah, it's 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 really really crazy. Um, it's funny you mentioned Elizabeth about you know just how Obama structured his speech. Um, I had heard because I, my mother is an ordained minister and I have an aunt mm-hmm. on both sides of my family, mom's side and dad's side, who are uh, ministers. And it's interesting, you know, when they went to divinity school, how they craft these sermons. Usually it can't go above, it can't go beyond a half hour because mm-hmm. people get tired out. And it's broken up in three pieces. The first piece is, you know, you address, uh, you, you make it light. You know, it's, a, you know, you tell jokes or whatever, or, you know, you talk about, let's say you address the, the Bible verse that you're going to use and you address um, a problem that's happening in today's world or what's happening in our daily lives. That's part one. Then part two, you address the Bible and you address, you know, what's going on, or let's say if it's the New Testament, what Jesus is talking about to the disciples and this and that and the other. And you get into what the problem was at the time that the verse was written. Mm-hmm. And then the third part is when you take it home and you bring it into, you know, what's happening to today's world and the solution. And if it's, you know, if it's a charismatic church, then of course that's when you get, you know, the foot stomping and the clapping and all that stuff. But I, I just find that stuff fascinating. Mm-hmm. It is really interesting. And it's, and, and you feel it move, even if you know the structure and somebody's really good, you feel it move on you and you like, right. There's a, there's a reason, right. 
It's mm-hmm. pulling you in. It's getting you to uh, to connect those those things together. Um, and so him talking about his history and being able to say to to John, you know, John Lewis that. I am here because of you. That was yeah. the best. I kept re- rewinding just to hear that little section because it's like, I guess when he, I guess when he first came to D.C. as a state senator, not as a U.S. senator, um, and he met John Lewis, he said, "I am here because of you." And then when he got into the Senate, he said something similar. And when he got the presidency, he said, "This is, you know, he was being congratulated." He's like, "This is." This is all of us. This is you. This is you, you know? And that's the thing is we forget sometimes that the that the path that we're laying out, we're just doing what we need to do. But there's somebody else watching it and knowing that you're making the way for them. And, right. you know, and as an educator, I, I know that, you know, I've, I've had that experience. Um, but it's when somebody comes back to you and says, oh, you said this thing and or you did this thing and I watched you and so I knew I could you know, I could make that leap. Uh, yeah. But I mean, if you're lucky, you get to have the, those moments. Um, I've been, I'm old enough. <laughs> right. I've had, I've had a well, but you of- haven't had to fly to New York yet to see your student get their Tony, have you? Not yet. yet. I'm waiting for the, I'm waiting for the acceptance speech, you know, where they like get up there and they say, and my teacher, Elizabeth Parker, <laughs> when I was in the, yeah, I don't know about that one. We'll see. We'll see. That would be a bucket list uh, moment if I, if I ever get to have one. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Very, very inspirational. Something we needed. Um, also, Herman Cain, he passed away. Um, Boy, that was a bit of a hard one. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to speak. It's Ill hard of, not to just be gleeful. I know. Um, I, it's hard to speak ill of the dead, but, you know, it's, he brought it on himself. I mean, you know, he, um, you know, he campaigns for Trump and he does it without a mask and surrounded by people who are, don't have masks. And brags about it. No, he tweeted about not wearing a mask, going yeah. to that thing without a mask. Yep, yep, yep. Horrible. Very, very horrible. Mm. And I think the last thing, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, the tweets about delaying the election. I mean. So, <laughs> what? I know. Yeah, it's just ridiculous. He doesn't. He knows he doesn't have power over that. But I, I think these are just dog whistles. They but are. It, Elizabeth, do you, are you optimistic about the upcoming election? I mean, are you worried that things there are going to be delays? I mean, are you pessimistic? Are you optimistic? How do you feel? I'm, I'm anxious. I won't say I'm pessimistic. I'm rarely pessimistic. Um, it's just not my nature. But um, I'm anxious. I'm anxious that people will be complacent because they feel that the state of the world is so uh, awful that they will be complacent. I'm worried that people will not feel safe to vote. Right. Um, I am worried about, you know, voter, <laughs> uh, bless you, um, voter suppression, um, you know, around the country. I mean, we see it already, people waiting in lines where they should not be waiting in lines. Um, mm-hmm. I know that in, I was in Georgia where they shut down like, um, like hundreds of polling places. Right. They yeah. what was it? One polling place for like six hundred thousand population, something like that. That's, it was that's bigger than like three Bay it's like Right. That's that's almost San Francisco. Yeah. yeah. That's like Oakland and Berkeley. Yeah. And, and it may have been the reason Stacey Abrams didn't win, you know, the uh will she run for the Senate or is it twenty eighteen? Oh yeah, for uh, the governor. Yeah. Yeah, the governor, yeah, yeah. And I, so I just, I, that's what I'm anxious about. I'm anxious that people, that the voter suppression is real. 
um, and that all of these little um, digs at the election process yeah. are making people feel like, what is the point anyways? Yeah. Um, because it won't be counted properly. Yeah. Um, and instead we, we need to like kind of dig in further and say, do it, whatever you need to do. How do I need to help you vote? We need um, to have another freedom summer. Yeah. Mara is actually signed up for like, uh, she was last weekend calling to Arizona and I heard some of the call and it's very cool. You're just saying, do you know about, do you have your ballot? Do you know that you can still get your ballot? Do you know you have to have it in by the 5th, I think, for Arizona? They have to have it in by the 5th, have it in the mail. And then if they want to know anything else, you can get into politics. But really, the chunk that they're trying to get out is just make sure that you're voting. Mm -hmm. And it was great because finally somebody asked. I heard her say, well, so let's talk about McSally. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, go there, please. Yeah. You know, some I mean, and it's emboldened to me, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, to just talk, to just, you know, get your voice out. I mean, like I've been looking at YouTube videos and people are putting videos out expressing their opinions or Twitter yeah. feeds and Facebook feeds. I mean, it's really I'm, I'm getting a sense. I, I'm, I'm optimistic as well, because I think that we won't make the mistake that we did in 2016. Um, and that's one of the good things about mistakes. You know, you can learn from them. Um, I'm also emboldened by the polls. I mean, you know, Biden is leading. I mean, even Texas is getting light, light, light red. Right. Um, which is very, very cool. And also Trump is frustrated. I mean, you know, you've got Mitch McConnell saying, listen, if, you know, to his senators, if you need to abandon Trump to win your election, then do it. Do whatever you right. need to do. Because it's not even, yeah, I know, that's big. Yeah. <laughs> So you don't, not only is Trump under the threat of losing an election, but we may win the Senate again. We, I mean, I'm a Democrat. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we may have a supermajority again and uh, we can get a lot done. So well, on current events, local, scary. So um, we went for a walk down by the lake and Dexter actually just started working at a place not far from the lake. So we dropped him off, and then we parked, and Mara said, well, let's take a walk down to the lake. So we walked down there. It was like a friggin' street fair. They were parked in the, you know, the little um, emergency lane in the middle. Mm -hmm. We were just parked there all the way up and down. There were people everywhere, masked, unmasked, all over the place, vendors. And, and so I know on the weekends they've actually said no parking at all. Right. Um, but I don't know if they're doing anything about these vendors. And I finally, I just kept saying to Mara, I'm sorry, but for every little group that we see, like you'd see, say, three people on a blanket, and you can kind of figure that's a relationship and a, maybe a housemate or something. Okay, that's cool. But then you see five people, no mask. I don't think all them people live together or anything like that. And then you're walking by them because the path is so narrow. So I finally convinced her, let's get out of here. And we went and walked down closer to the estuary. Actually ended up down by your place, Rich. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, I'm worried because what we hear in the news is how Florida and Georgia and all these hot in California, spots. if you look on the Washington Post, they have the, uh, the, these lines that show yeah, the graphs. states are going. And California is way up there. I mean, I thought it was right. mostly L.A., but obviously, from what you're saying, you know, we're we're completely we are out. smugly thinking, oh, we're not those idiots. It's like, no, we're our we own are idiots. Those idiots. So mm -hmm. I'm thinking I'm going to spend a lot more time. Like, I would love to take a walk because I do that with friends. We can be masked. We can keep a distance. We can have a nice visit. I'm not going someplace where I'm surrounded by people. No. 
Because masked and unmasked means that air is questionable. Well, and I just, like, implore people, you know, if I was to get on my soapbox, like, please. Other countries do it way better than we do. Asia's been wearing masks for a variety of different reasons yep. for, very, for many years now. The individualisticness of the American persona is <clears throat> I get to do what I want to do because I have a right to be my own person. Right. And I have, I'm not beholden unto you. Right. right? I don't know you. Um, and if I don't feel like I want to, I shouldn't have to. Um, or I think I know better. There's also this like mentality of Americans where like, I know better. I think we think our our size and our standing in the world, which is falling, um, sort of immunizes us from things. Um, and it's not true. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as somebody who has people who are immunocompromised in my world, and somebody right. who has, um, you know, an older mother-in-law, um, and is somebody who has a kid who would like to go back to school someday, you know, I implore you, please wear your dang mask so we can get through this. But we won't get through it until everybody takes their own responsibility. I have masks. I don't walk out to take out the garbage without putting a mask on. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna be honest. I, I put a mask on because I want the habit Every time I leave the house, I put the mask on. Yeah. I, I might take it off in the car while I'm driving. Sometimes I don't because I just irritate. I'm just like, just leave it on, whatever. Just get used to it. The idea that kids can't get used to it is not true. My son right. and I, he, he, wear, he can wear it for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. um, just get used to it. Other countries do it. We yep. can do it too. We are yep. not special. We are not unique. It is not an infringement upon your rights. It is a protecting of all of our health and well-being and the right to live. Yeah, absolutely. And the, and to protect you know um, other other individuals because you may feel fine, but you may still be a carrier. You know, I've tested right. several times, and I'm going to be doing another test. I think my fourth one wow. uh, this coming week. And sure, I feel fine, but I may be a carrier. And I was right. last week. You know, in the greatest generation, you know, during war times they sacrifice, you know, meatless Tuesdays right. and fruitless Wednesdays and all that sort of stuff to sacrifice for other people, which would be, you know, our soldiers fighting abroad. So right. the idea of sacrifice has, has become lost. Mm -hmm. um, you're absolutely right. You know, our freedom, you know, we take advantage of our freedom. I have the freedom to act like an idiot. I have the freedom right. to not wear a mask. I have right. the freedom to potentially kill myself or kill somebody else. Right. Yeah. It's horrible. As yeah. Spider-Man said, with great freedom comes responsibility. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thank I, you. Always. Yeah. I have one last question for you, Elizabeth. You know, and I'm thinking about the George Floyd and, you know, all of the uh -huh. Black Lives Matter stuff. What conversations have you had, if any, with your son regarding that? Um, uh, uh, have you had any at all? Oh, a ton. I mean, we talk very openly in our house. We are not afraid to have conversation. We never have been. Um, anything that comes up, um, if something happens in the world, we talk about it. Um, if, if in, a, in an age appropriate way, you know, right. um, I don't bring out Cornell West, you know, my nine-year-old, but, um, <laughs> but we, um, yeah, we've had, we've had several conversations. We've gone to some protests. Um, he and I, um, I, I've talked to him about, you know, some of my fears. I explained to him, you know, what happened um 
and he knows and he you know he he says things he's actually very very um astute about a lot of things like um and i try to just really instill in him like pride but i'm i'm getting to the place where i'm gonna have to like start telling him like how to act yeah um, and that's the hard part i think that's the part where i feel like the most um pain is telling him he has to be you know really careful um in the way that he interacts not just with police but like in a situation where he feels threatened to like to because now you know you know we've always known that there have been you know uh ignorant and racist folks out there um but yeah how to ask how to just sort of you know suss out what what someone's intentions are and to get yourself to a safe place um and that's really really painful to today we i mean we talk a lot about we talk about racism we talk we've talked about um you know we've talked about our history as a, as a country we've talked about sometimes when um teachers or educators or um people don't see you fully you know and what they read and we also had to talk with him recently about colorism mm, yeah because another boy got in trouble he got an, a, another him and another boy were together and they a, a neighbor was racist and came at both these boys both black boys yeah and um it was really hard for us and he we had to explain what was happening and they were terrified he said he said he was going to, um, what did he say? He was going to kick their ass or something? They're both oh, nine. Wow. And about picking, <clears throat> which weren't even from his yard. They oh. were from the yard of another neighbor who was like fine with it. Uh-huh. But had attributed it to something. So it escalated. Wow. And um, the other parent and my wife had to go over there and have a conversation with this man and put him in his place. But the kids were terrified. And... Um, yeah. And I and we had to have a conversation with our son, who's a little lighter than the other boy. And I said, you know, they're going to think he is this darker skin boy is the one who's the troublemaker. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know my son is is a lot lighter and in you know and very personable, and I know he's going to get away with things that other kids won't get away with. You know, so we had to have a conversation, and he got it. He really got it. Mm -hmm. um, I said, so you know. If, if you know something is true, you have to stand up. Yeah, no, that, that's awesome, man. It's, it's something that we really don't talk about. It's interesting. My second mom, because uh, my biological mom, she died in 20, 2006. And so my second mom, and I love her dearly, but she's a light-skinned woman. And she talked about, you know, sometimes the races, even within the black race of skin colors. And it goes back to slavery times, you know, who was in the house, who's in the field. But it exists even now, and even among you know um, Asian Americans, uh, you know who are darker skinned Asians and then lighter skinned Asians. And yes, it's unfortunate that it's still happening now in 2020, and uh, it's good. It's I hear what you're saying. It's the loss of innocence. You know, you're a young kid and you think, yeah. hey, you know, I live in a post-racial society. I'm not even thinking about that. I'm just having fun. All of a sudden, you have a racist bring reality even before you as a parent are ready to talk about that, right. and you right. have to have these very difficult conversations. Um, but, you know, um, he, he's got wonderful uh, parents, uh, you and your partner, and uh, so. Well, and I think also the, um, the other piece uh, that is, even for a young person, I think they can understand, is that notion of advocacy. Mm -hmm. 
that yeah. you can speak up. We've got a horrible intersection where people will come and sort of practice for sideshow. They'll spin and spin and spin out there. And sometimes their friends will be standing around watching and filming. And Mara walked out and just, you know, she said, hey, I wish you wouldn't do that here in front of my house. And they tried to say something. She's like, well, where do you live? And the guy said, I just live a couple of blocks away. And she said, well, how would your mama feel if you were doing that in front of his, in front of your house? And then she just sat down. She didn't call the police. She didn't threaten them. Right. Um, but by being that presence, they got tired of this little white lady sitting there harshing their buzz, and they went away. <laughs> and yeah. sometimes just being a presence when you're not the subject, the target, Mm -hmm. can help and even I think little kids can understand you you know it's the same idea of standing up to bullies yeah. if you you don't have to fight but just by being that presence that witness you can have a power right. yeah it's the art of communication and you know we're not seeing a lot of it when it comes to these you know uh clashes you know yeah. just, let's just open up and talk to each other you know we know that we're all different and we think differently but you know we can still disagree and be and not be disagreeable and you know, the more we talk, the more we can understand each other. So with that, let's have an origin story, Elizabeth Carter. So um, are you in the Bay Area now? I, I'm assuming yeah. that you are. Oh, you are. Yes, I'm in Oakland. I'm in oh. Oakland. Okay, I thought you were traveling. I thought you were doing some work on the West Coast. I'm mean, sorry, the East Coast or whatever. But No, I had been. I had been. In, um, I did uh, last, uh, the end of last year, I was in New York doing um, Eureka Day uh, with Colt Core at Soho Rep. So I did get to do some traveling, which was really fun, but I'm based in Oakland and I've been here. So, yeah, so, but now with the computer, you can travel anywhere. So. Yeah, that's exactly right. Are you born and raised here? I am uh, raised in actually Eugene, Oregon. I am a Northwest wow. girl. Yep, Northwest hippie girl. <laughs> Siblings? Uh, I have a younger brother, yes, who lives on the East Coast. And okay. an amazing artist in his own right. Yes, he is. He is a uh, a music producer um, and does mixes. And um, I think that just got nominated for, what is it, a whammy? Yeah, something like that. Something yeah. Like that. Anyways, you know. People um, should know Elizabeth and I are old friends, so. Very old friends. Like, mm -hmm. we go back I remember to. remember when her brother lived in a little room in the back when they were sharing a house. Yeah. <laughs> Sharing a house in, in his studio. <laughs> right. Cool. Well, uh, so tell, tell our audience uh, how you got involved in theater. Where, did you do stuff as a little girl? Oh, my goodness. Okay. So I was thinking about this because Norman kind of gave me a teeny bit of a heads up. And I was thinking, what is my origin story? And I guess the origin is really, is I did do theater as a high school student. I probably was creating radio shows and all the things like all of us with our like little cassette deck um you know as a kid um at one point i wanted to be a dancer but when i got into high school i really got very involved in theater and i remember a moment i think this is sort of like that moment they just sort of have in comic books where everything sort of shifts on a dime and i was doing theater i was 15 and um was very very passionate and I had a really great theater program at my high school. And one teacher who just did everything, but he was amazing. Um, Joe Zingo, shout out to Joe Zingo. Um, and I remember my mother saying, well, how do you, um, I, she said something to me. She w wanted me to stop doing something. I can't remember what it was. And I said, mom, you don't understand. 
this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Wow. And she said, you're 15. How do you know what you want to do for the rest of your life? Right. And I never forgot that. I'm, you know, I'm much older now and I have never forgotten that moment. It was the moment I went, Oh, I'm going to show you. (laughs) Right. I was like, Oh, you don't know mom, but she didn't know. And she didn't realize. And here I am, you know, 30 plus years later and I'm still doing it. Right. Doing it professionally and have been for, for over yeah, 20, for a while. You know, 20, 25 years, I think. God, yeah, like 25 century. years. Wow. Yeah. So, so, you know, like you just never know. But it sort of felt like one of those moments you see, like with the, the thing in it, like, you know, the big screen, the big uh, panel and a comic book where you feel like, oh, this is the moment. And yeah, this is when Peter Parker gets bitten by the, you know, the spider or whatever, you know, the transformation. Yeah. Yeah, at that moment. And I, when I just said, no, I'm doing this and I'm going to show you that I can do it. And I was singing and um, I actually got a scholarship to study opera at one point um, at my college. And um, but acting felt like it was more of a challenge. And I just put every, you know, I just put so much of my energy in that basket. I just wanted it so badly. And, um, and it's a career, it's a life choice, right? Mm-hmm. So um, that's sort of my, my origin as an actor. Yeah. What, uh, what formal training have you had, if any? Yeah. Um, I had, I went to Mills College. I graduated from Mills College. In my junior year, I had the amazing experience of going to London for an entire year. Um, in a program through Marymount College in New York. And they have this London drama program and it's very intensive. It's like a conservatory for a year. I knew that I wasn't, when I graduated from high school, wasn't quite ready to go into a conservatory program. Um, I felt like I was too honestly um, tender to like be in an environment where I was gonna kind of be pulled apart. And that's what I thought school was. So I was like, I'm not sure I'm quite ready. Um, I don't think my parents would have let me go anyways. Um, but um, so I got my degree from Mills College, but I had this amazing year where I basically studied everything and watched, saw like, I don't know, 60 shows in London. Oh, and wow. Came back just like, I mean, we saw stuff like almost every night, you know, we were in class from nine o'clock in the morning till six o'clock at night if we had rehearsal with a scene partner so it was really that that conservatory um training and then i came back and finished um my senior year i did top girls um organized a uh uh basically what you would call like a anti-racist um platform for school from for the college um that year we're doing a lot of activism work. Um, and then by the time I ended my senior year, I was an apprentice at California Shakespeare Theater, like five days before I graduated from college. And so, and then I just started working. Um, and so I never went back to school, didn't get an MFA. I kept thinking, well, maybe when, my, when things kind of slow down, I feel like I really need to, I'll go back to school, right? Maybe I'll go back to school. And then it just never felt right. Um, and the moment that I thought I was actually going to go back to get my MFA, I met my wife. And I was like, nope, I can't be separated for that long. And yeah. I don't regret it. I feel like I've had the path that I'm supposed to have um, as, as, a, as an artist. And so that's 
you know. But I, I mean, I've taken other little things here and there. Yeah, and but. it sounds like you haven't really needed it. I mean, we when we talked with Jonathan Williams uh, last week, we talked about the, the merits of a formal education or, you know, an academic training regarding theater as opposed to someone who just has the talent in them and they just go on stage and, you know, they may fall or whatever, but they learn from right. just doing. What do you think? I mean, what's your take on, let's say a young student's like, hey, do I need formal training or do I have the talent right now? Should I go to school or not? What do you think? I think it's a mixture. I think, I don't necessarily think you have to be in a conservatory. I mean, would I love to be in some of those conservatory classes? Cause they're just like, it's like, it feels indulgent almost to like get to spend all this time, like getting to like hone your craft. Um, and I know that there, for many people, there's a little bit of like what's well, imposter syndrome. And for myself as well, for many years, I thought, well, they went and got their MFA. So they somehow know some things that I don't, don't know, or they're using terminology that I didn't get because I didn't go to that school. Um, but in terms of being present, and listening and being willing to learn from like um, like an apprenticeship, right? You learn through what you're doing. Mm -hmm. I think you can, I think uh -oh. you can totally do that. And I think we've commodified the education of actors as if it will pay off in the same way. Right. Necessarily pay off any better unless you go to Yale. If you go to right. Yale, you're gonna be working all the time. Right, um, there's a few places, right, where you just walk out Right. And, and you walk out and you're, you know, um, I went to, I worked at Utah Shakespearean Festival in 1995. Oh, Lord. Um, but they bring in a lot of like MFA students and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so I was one of like five people that didn't have an MFA or wasn't in the program. I was just like, oh, I'm, I have my BA and I'm just working you know, mm -hmm. and I was really in the min minority and that's when it sort of shifted in the 90s. So I don't know. I think that if you feel like that's what you want to do, I'm not going to hold you. I would never hold you back or say, don't get the training. Um, but I don't think that you can, I think you can find your way and do it without the training. Mm -hmm. I think that, but you have to be someone who's observant, and soaking up everything and using every opportunity as your classroom um, to show up absolutely fully um, in every moment. And I think that, I feel like that's what I took with me and that's what I did at Cal Shakes. Like I find yourself a mentor. Right. Get to know them, ask them questions, get them to give you all the hotlines, you know, do your research, get your, you know, TBA membership, go to the panels, you know, like watch, look at people that you admire and, and start like honing your, your skills. Mm -hmm. um, if you feel like you need an audition coach, you can get an audition coach. Right. You can get together with a few friends and go in on it and like, you know, have a mini class. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who put their dreams on hold because they think that they need this huge education or this degree. And I don't think that that's, I don't think that that's true. Um, yeah, it's 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 very personalized. It's funny because you know, Ridge. You know, mostly when this subject come up, I'm I'm on the fence about it. I feel like there are a lot of folks out there ready to take your money, and like Elizabeth said, you don't walk out of that program and get a job. At the end of the program, if you personally gain something, that might be as much as you're going to get out of it. But as you were talking, especially with that idea of internships, 
I realize there's a way where I would love to see more programs focus, and that's on <clears throat> a more um, specific development. You know, we do this like, uh, what's her name? Um, uh, Bogart, Ann Bogart. Mm -hmm. You know, I, the Ann Bogart technique is a technique. That's what it is. Um, it's not the only way to make theater. It's not the best way to make theater. It's not the worst way to make theater. It is a way to make theater. I would love to feel like if organizations are going to sponsor that sort of thing, if you're not doing like, like SF Shakes does, where the kids are actually working with professionals, <clears throat> or Cal Shakes also does that sort of thing, that's great. Something that is specific to who your organization is and how you make theater, that's going to be a valuable lesson for somebody to recognize. This is a way to do it. It's a, you know, this is a effective way to make theater. And if it really, if you grew with it, like I love word for word, so I love that style of theater. Somebody else might go, wow, I've never been comfortable with that. And that'll help push them in a direction that they're going to be more happy with. I would love it if educational processes gave students that kind of power. <laughs> yeah, and I'll, I'll chip in. Um, having come from NYU, one of the things I sort of learned, because it had all sorts of programs, it's sort of a way of you learning who you are, mm -hmm. not only as an actor, but as a person. You know, you may just say, oh, I just want to get on stage, but you have no idea if you're 18 or 17 years old and you do want to be do a theater, what theater are, are we talking about? Are you talking about <clears throat> experimental theater? Mm -hmm. From a no theater? Are you talking about comedy? Um, a lot of times you won't even know until you get into, let's say, particular programs and you're like, eh, I don't know if that I'm really into that or whatever. Right. Um, like, I, so there's one, I was, a, I was a stage manager for, we did Lifetimes 3, which is written by Yasmina Reza. Mm -hmm. And it's very experimental. It deals with, um, it's, it's experimental theater. Uh, it's, it's very abstract. Uh, I, the director had the actors being amoebas, you know, as a, as a, um, as a um, exercise. Thank you. As an exercise. And one actor was like, the hell with this. And he quit. He was like, I'm not doing this. And, and it's one of those things where um, that's when you know, you know what theater you want to do and what theater you don't want to do. One question that I have for both of you as directors we had Susan Evans on a while back, and she's the artistic director of Town Hall Theater. And she says when she looks into a resume and she can see what experience or what school a person's gone to, she can tell, and maybe it's a bit of bias, whether she wants to work with that person or not. You know, there's some school that she has a bias against, or she'd be like, okay, I think I understand where this person got their technique. You're saying the actor's resume? Yeah, the actor's resume. Wow. You know, I have that, I've, I've seen that happen. I'm going to be straight up because I've, you know, I've auditioned in a lot of places and, and I do know that that happens. And I think I used to buy into that a little bit to be like, oh, well, this actor went to UW, let's say, right. or this actor, or ACT. or ACT, or, or, you know, this person went to Yale, this person went to, or Chabot. Or Chabot, right? <laughs> or Chabot. No, Chabot has like some serious. No, I know. If you say Chabot, then yeah, if you know who the faculty is, you, you should be You know who's thrilled. teaching them, right? And, right. And you know who to call. So right. really what that's about is networking. Yeah. Really yeah. what that's about is networking. So like um, when I listed, and, and I remember when I first made my resume, it was like I put on their Mary, you know, Marymount London Drama Program, and I put all the teachers that taught me. Right. Because I know somebody might know oh, that teacher, hard. 
right? And be like, oh, that teacher, especially when I didn't have much on my resume now, I'm like, whatever. But, right. um, but then, you know, it was like, you know, and, and same thing with putting directors. So the same thing is like, you put all the directors, someone go, oh, I worked with that. Uh, oh, I know that director. So they mm -hmm. know like, okay, I have respect for that director, that director. So I do think that that is true. I think it is dangerous if we circumvent, which what one of the things I'm seeing in the audition process, when I auditioned for Lear, um, a lot of people are just getting to come in and do either one side or um, a monologue and they're just, you know, a monologue or, uh, and then maybe read from the script and then that's it, right? There's no like mixing and matching of people. Right. And I think this is dangerous. I think we've gotten so streamlined and sort of kind of tried to truncate our audition process that we are not allowing people to, um, I did chemistry reads. You know, I had people come back in and I paired people up with different people. To see what the chemistry is. Yeah, to see who fit together. Instead of like, I love this actor and I love this actor. Ooh, together they make nothing, right? You can Hey, you didn't bring me back in. I'm sorry, Norman. <laughs> no bias. Okay, I saw Cassidy Brown. I was like, oh, okay. He's lovely. Um, Cassidy Brown, shit. Yeah. I know. He's, he's tearing it up as Kent. He's tearing I it bet. up. I um, bet. I have an amazing cast. But people kept coming back. Actors kept coming back and saying, oh, my gosh, thank you so much. Because they get an opportunity to actually show themselves fully. Um, and I feel like, and I said, I know because I'm an actor. Right. As a director, I understand when you don't get the opportunity to try something or to be fully in the room, that it is frustrating. Um, and especially when you get down to like a callback and, and sometimes you know right away, it's true. It is true. Directors, like sometimes you sit back and you know right away, you're like, nope, that's not gonna work. I like that person, they're not gonna work in the, in the puzzle pieces I have to fit together, which sometimes have to do with the union, um, you know, how many union contracts you have, what you're trying to say with the piece, um, people's ages, um, uh, you know, I need this person, so this other person has to shift because I need this person in this role. So right. those things all come into play. It's casting's really complicated, and um, and it is definitely something that I take a lot of time to wrestle in my brain with. Um, I mean, I, I was mentioning that I was talking about your process in Lear, and of course, I know nothing behind the scenes, but I was saying, well, so you've got company members, and I don't know how many company members I talked to last summer who were not in the show, and a couple of them are in the show this summer, and I'm like, well, yay, you know, y'all work hard for the company, you really represent well, and yeah, you should get some extra consideration. You should be the one that somebody like a director is having to go, well, if I use her, oh, okay, well, then I don't really have a spot for this other person who I think is great. Right. I, I, I've got to mix it up. Yeah, you have to weigh all those things. And, and, and SF Shakes, I think, really tries hard to be um, a company that is really thoughtful about the people that they work with. Oh, and very I much. I really, really appreciate that. I appreciate it as a director. I appreciate it as, uh, you know, if I, were, if I were an actor working with them. And so, yeah, you have all these little pieces. And then I, you have also, what does the family look like? What is the, you know, what is the uh, ethnic breakdown? What is the, like, how many, you know, um, BIPOC folks, you know, 
are you having in your cast? Like, what do you want that balance to look like? Um, and what are you saying with that, right? It's not just like, how many people can I throw in there? It's like, well, what are you saying with those roles being in a particular way? And it's, so it's, it's really quite, it's much more complicated than people, people think. Um, I, I saw something from an actor getting very frustrated about a process and a show that I actually ended up in. And, and I thought, I get what you're saying. I know you felt like you were tagged along, but in the end, having a person of color in the role that you were up for would have made, would have totally shifted the play. Oh yeah. And, and so actually it would have not served the play mm -hmm. and what the message was and would have undercut the conversation that did happen around race. It would have undercut that. And so sometimes you have to make these really hard decisions and you may want to do things differently. Yeah. Um, and then you realize you are also in service to the play. And I'm someone who's a huge advocate, obviously, as a, as a black woman, um, of, you know, getting as many folks, you know, in the door as I can. Um, and, um, but sometimes you have to make decisions that are based on the story that needs to be told in that moment. Yeah, no, I totally agree because, you know, you can't, you know, I don't want I don't want to be in a play because well we need a black person let's let's get a black person in there. I, you know, I want to make you know you see something within me that really fits the integrity of the play. Mm -hmm. It makes me think of the uh, the living document. This is something that we've talked about. I think uh, you, you've seen it, Elizabeth. I have. I got really triggered by it, so I it's stopped. Very triggering. It, to be honest with you, and I will go back to it um, <laughs> when I'm not focusing on other things that need really need me to be. A present and, and positive so that I could make some action. Um, but there was the things that were triggering to me was uh, were not necessarily the incidents of, of racism, because I know that those things have been happening, they've been happening to me, right. to a lot of people. Um, and I love that people are trying to make some change. Um, I got frustrated because I was a part of, um, you know, a group of women who were trying to call attention to things, you know, several years ago and got some attention, but also like we've told theater companies, like, this is what you need to do for years. Like, this is not new. And right, right. Aren't you tired of trying to have that conversation? We're going to have a conversation about diversity. Right. Yeah. And then I got also frustrated with understandable frustration from other BIPOC folks who, if, you know, um, were angry with other POC folks not standing up for them when it's really difficult as an actor sometimes to feel like you have agency to speak up in a room. And we all have to do it more, but it is, actors are the, the lowest um, in the sort of rankings of like voice in the room. And when something happens, it can feel terrifying to say something. And so having a little empathy and saying like, we can shift this is where I love to like, we can shift that and have more conversation and stand up. But 20 years ago, I know Norman and I have known each other for a long time. When shit went down, we would be like, excuse me, I'm not gonna say shit. But no, you're all no, good. You can't, I, you know, uh, we're an so, adult program. Yes, um, that, um, um, that, you know, if I 
said something, then it would feel, you know, like you would never work there again. Right. Like yeah. you, you would never work there oh, again. Oh, God. Um, what is it? Um, uh, trouble in, t trouble in, trouble trouble in mind? mind? Yeah. Yes. I mean, that's exactly that conversation, right? Yes. Yeah. Court play that, that deals with a black folks, and it's actually based on a thing that happened in the WPA, the, uh, the theater project, where a white director was going to make this statement with this play by bringing in all these actors who were veteran black actors, but they'd been playing slaves and maids and whatever. And the dynamic was just difficult, and it's still a difficult conversation. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. You, uh, I'm so I'll, uh, when I read the Living Project, um, there was one there in the Living document. There was one mentioning of a production that I actually was in, and um, we actually had some of the individuals on the A. And basically, it was uh, the one woman who was part of the cast. She was like, "Let's have a prayer," and it made it, you know um, it alienated individuals who were Jewish and who were agnostic and atheist. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I bring it up because, you know, my way, I mean, I'm an older individual, I'm 51 years old. Um, my way of dealing with that sort of conflict is different from someone else. You know, someone may say, well, I'm going to the director, I'm going to challenge this thing. Mm -hmm. But I remember going to the actual woman and saying, hey, listen, I think you need to understand the dynamics of what's going on. Mm -hmm. You're going to alienate some folks. So I understand you have, you have good intentions, but it may not be the right thing to do. So, um, Eli Orkiza, and we've had him on the yay, he was the one who created the, the living document. Yeah. You know, you have millennials who are addressing these issues in a protest uh, way of doing things, you know, and it's, it's a byproduct of the Black Lives Movement and the Me Too Movement, and you know, there are all these movements, and so it's like, hey, let's, you know, bring it out there. And then you have some who are like, hey, I'm going to deal with this directly. I'm going to deal with the, you know, it's like what you, what you're talking about, Elizabeth. You know, you go to the director and the producer. They might, maybe, they might, they may not listen. Right. But at least you're doing it. Um, so I wonder, um, you know, obviously theater companies are going to have to address how they deal with actors mm -hmm. and how they address um, making sure the rehearsal space is a, is a cogent and a wonderful place to work in. And also what you're saying, the decisions and casting. Are you making the right decisions? Are you creating a, both a diverse casting, but also one that actually fits the play? Oh God, I did a read of a play um, not long ago, month, maybe two months ago. Um, and because I am a, it's with Play Cafe, I'm a regular reader with them. Um, they had me read, uh, they, it was a father role, but it was Irish. I mean, it was specifically Irish immigrant. And, so afterwards, they're like, well, that was great, and that was wonderful. And it was neat mixing up the casting like that. And I'm like, I think not at all. You're not serving the play because the main characters are black, and they're dealing with these Irish immigrants. Mm -hmm. I, I, I said, you're so missing the message of the play by straying away from that casting, you know? You, you're not doing me any favors, and you're not flattering me. I, I don't really want to work on an Irish accent. <laughs> I mean... Go ahead. Uh, and also, I was going to ask you a question as far as what were your experience dealing with racism and even sexism? Oh, my Lord. <laughs> we, could, we have a whole nother hour. Um, <laughs> well, one of, the, one of the key, let's just say, as a woman of color, um, there are two things that, that end up happening. Either you 
can be a target of exotification, right? Um, you're exoticized, um, or, you know, you can be invisible, right? So there's sort of these, like, sort of two ways that I've, I've watched it play out in my life. I was one of the, I was the first woman apprentice, uh, Cal Shakes doesn't have apprentices anymore, but I was the first woman apprentice to be hired back at Cal Shakes in the 90s. And um, it had always been men. And I had several experiences there, which generally my experience was very positive. Um, it was Then it was a rep company, um, but I did have this experience where I had to play a maid. It was a 1930s production, Merchant mm. of Venice, and I had to wear this maid outfit in 1930s. And for whatever reason, I was young. I was like 23 or something. And I I thought, oh, I don't, I was like, it didn't hit me until we were in tech. And then I was like, oh my God, because we were having so much fun. We're all bantering. It's all like, oh, everything's fine. And I got in the maid costume. I was like, I am a maid. Holy crap. Right. And so it hit me. It really like washed over me. And I had this little doily thing, like a little lacy thing I was supposed to put on the top of my oh, head. God. Yeah. And I thought, and there was two, there was, I was a maid. There was a, a white girl who was a maid and there was a white man who was a butler. Right. So it wasn't like all the black people were maids, but needless to say, I was having my feels about playing a maid understandably so based on history right right and there was a little doily thing that i wanted that i had to um i was supposed to wear on my head and i got it stuck in my head that if i didn't wear the doily somehow it would be okay like if i could just not wear the do you know we make these little bargains with ourselves right, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I think of Hattie, was it hattie mcdaniel uh, gone with the wind um yes yes yeah, yeah so this is what happened to me so i got i was struggling right and my other co-maid was like oh this is so fun and i was like uh yeah i am having a lot of feelings about being a maid and i walked out on the back deck of cal shakes um, in costume, and the first thing that this other white actor said to me, who was equity and older than me, said, um, quoted Butterfly McQueen, I don't know nothing about birth and no babies. Mm. And I almost hauled off and clocked him. Yeah. Wow. And I said, I, I threw an F-bomb. I was like, fuck you. And walked away. <laughs> and he didn't know. I mean, obviously he should have known, in, in my opinion that that's a stereotype and you are throwing that at a black actor. Um, and after Butterfly McQueen did that role, she was blacklisted and she lost a lot and she was devastated by that. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, there, it was just so, it was like one of those sort of moments where I just remember sitting there and going and talking to another black actor who I've reconnected, um, uh, who lives in LA now, who we were working that same season. And she said, oh my God, I've played Maid so many times. And I thought, here's this little spunky, fiery um, black woman. Um, and she's telling me, oh yeah, I've had to do this a lot. And I was like, oh God, is this my career? I'm gonna fucking play a bunch of maids? Like, I mean, cause I was just starting out. And, right. um, and so that kind of, you know, informed me. And especially because I've done a lot of classical theater, especially in my earlier years. Um, figuring out how to carve out those spaces or the other funny thing that always happens to me, I'm tall. Um, 
is people always want me to sing in a particular way. They want me to have a big alto belt and be this, you know. Because all black people belt. sound that way. All people sound all like black different. people sound that way. You sound like Jennifer Holiday or, you know. Exactly. Like, yeah. Exactly. And, and so there's this presumption also by my size, too, um, that I have this, you know, the, you know, that I need this black sound, right? This gospel-y, bluesy uh, black sound. I have a very classical voice. I love to sing jazz. I can sing that way. Um, it, is, it is not my first comfort zone space to go into in my voice. I'm a mezzo, soprano. Um, and, you know, just con constantly getting pigeonholed. I feel like in the last several years, um, it, it started to kind of open up. I've gotten to do a lot of roles that are not, I played Agnes and Agnes of God. I've, um, I've done some things that have been sort of outside of those boxes, but um, it is very clear to me that, you know, we get pushed into those spaces. And then when you're in those spaces to be told, um, you know, to know that also because I'm a light-skinned woman that I'm getting, um, I'm getting, I'm playing roles that maybe should be played by a light-skinned woman. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. I'm more acceptable. I, I know that, um, you know, the way that I present myself to some people is like, you know, that respectability politics, like, you know, all of that stuff. And, and I'm really have come to kind of terms with like, it's okay to be who I am. I don't have to like perform blackness for you because I just am black. Right. You know, but I right. also this counts. Yes. yes. But I also want to try to set up spaces where we can have, you know, those conversations. But I've hit I've hit a lot of things. I've had um I've had artistic directors hit on me. I've had um them ignore me and treat me like crap. Um even while they're directing me. I've I've had some really traumatic um uh experiences. And I've watched other people and tried to, you know, intervene. And as I, as I have more, um, well, as I've grown in myself to be able yeah. to stand up, especially for young people, because we need to teach a different way. I just directed at my high school that I teach at last year. I directed um, Abraham Lincoln's Big Gay Dance Party. Oh, that's right. I, <laughs> I wish I could have seen play. that. It's amazing. But there's a um, there's a, a Latina in there that um, Esmeralda Diaz, and I had two students um, who uh, two Latina um, students in my program, and neither one of them ended up wanting to do the role. And I had this other actor. She's like, I can't play it as. So these are young people. These are high school students. They're like, I don't feel comfortable. I don't want to. I I can't. I know that like she was a fantastic actor and I, so we totally had to change the character because I was, she was like, I can't be a Latina. Like I won't pretend to be a Latina. And I was like, I don't want you to pretend to be a Latina. So what do we need to do? So like they're coming with a new perspective, which I love is like, I'm not going to take that role or appropriate that role. So what do we need to do? That's to awesome. That work? That's going to be a hard conversation though. Cause folks are now getting picky about, well, should you do this and should you do that? And I think there's the need for sensitivity to it, but you should also ask yourself, because, I mean, that's what we've had to do. 
I am in, I mean, I did once this weird production of As You Like It that was set at the end of the Spanish Inquisition. And I said to the director, who am I? And he's like, you know, you're, I don't think of you as black. I'm like, Please. No, 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 that's the wrong answer, wrong answer. Right. And so I did my research and it wasn't hard to find when you consider that Spain was ruled by the Moors for 700 years, it's not hard to find black people in their culture, not at all. And so I ended up having to do that work and right. I brought that to the character. It didn't change a word of what we did. Right. What a shame the director didn't have that. Fascinating yeah. thing. So if you're going to talk about the Latin world, you know, those, those folks from that diaspora, um, there's a wonderful range there that's available for two actors if they well, want to. Like Hispanic versus, I, Hispanic versus uh, Latin American. Latinx, yeah. Latinx. Like those are two different things. Yes. People conflate them, but they are two different things. So, um, you know, like they're just things that we we need to be aware of. Um, I when I did, you never can tell at Cal Shakes in uh, I don't remember. You know, that was gorgeous. I love that production. Sixteen had so much fun, but you know, I came to Lisa Peterson in one of our text conversations, and I was like, "Yeah, so who am I in nineteen twelve or something or nineteen oh eight? Like, who am I as a black woman? Because I'm not going to leave my black woman outside the door because the audience is going to see me. I'm not, I'm not a neutral person. And I know you had this whole family that makes sense together. So who am I? So we started, and so I had to do the research, right? Like, who are the women? Who are the black women of this time? Who are feminists? Who are doing, you know, and some of them I knew and some of them I didn't know. Um, and who were writing at that time. We have, you know, Ida B. Wells, we have like, you know, so, but that's often the onus is on us as actors to make sense of why we exist in this space that is not necessarily was originally written for us. And here's a, here's a question as directors. I mean, is it is it right that it should be the onus of the actor to know what, what the actor is or should the director have it in their vision to say, hey, listen, this is what you as. I think it's I think it's first it is the actors. Um as a director, I love it when actors bring something that I wasn't thinking about to the mix. Is the director that flexible? Cuz I as a director, I can't have the 100% vision of this piece. No. No, but I do think it is I think it is irresponsible to hire actors of color and not be thinking about how they fit in that world. Agreed. I yeah. think that, that is irresponsible. And I think you have to have some place to like make sense of it. And you have to like not necessarily ignore it unless it really, and then you have to offer and ask the question of the actor like, okay, well, who is this person? Like, why are you here? Let's talk about like, what does it mean to have you as in your body? Because as much as people want to like, <clears throat> And that they can kind of, we've gotten to this thing, you know, we went in the 2000s, I would say, late 90s, 2000s, it was sort of like, okay, well, you come on stage and you're just sort of in neutral, you know, we're just neutralizing everyone, right? That was the idea that like, um, color didn't matter, right? right? But that's not actually, you know, psychologically, it, it, it doesn't actually work, right? There are dynamics, there are power. There's more interesting stuff that you can bring to a play 
if you don't ignore those things, yeah. right? And certainly the audience that. doesn't see it that way. They see if you're a black person, they're going to see a black person. Right. Yeah. right. So make it complex for them. Make it interesting for them. Um, have hard questions. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean it won't throw wrenches in your in your vision. Um, it will, you know. Yeah, but that's part of the challenge. No, I totally agree. And as an actor, I'm like, well, listen, why did you hire me? You know, what did you see in me? And if you don't know what the character is, and, you know, if I'm doing all the work, I mean, I don't mind doing the work. I, you know, I'm the type of actor. I'll have all sorts of ideas. And it's one of the things that we talk about on the A, the actor not just seeing themselves as, oh, I just hope this company hires me. But the company is also auditioning themselves for you. It's like, yes. do I want to be a part of this play? Do I want to be part of this company? If I'm going to be doing the rehearsal process for three and a half months or so, you know, is this a, a company that I want to be with? So we talk about the actor empowering themselves. Yes. How do I see myself? Is this a director I want to work with and what have you? Um, and also, that's a question I should ask you, because there are a lot of actors who want to be at your level that you are right now, Elizabeth. When did you see yourself as a sort of business where you say, hey, I've got to take authority of me as an actor and see myself not just as, oh, please, please, please give me a, a job, but as, well, let me see if I want to work with this company. Hmm. Does that wow. make sense? I'm sure. Yeah, that, that one's harder for me. <laughs> Go ahead, Elizabeth. I, you know, I think that, that it probably happened probably a little later than than I would think, but I think it was probably when I started doing uh, when Trouble in Mind right around then. Um, so that's like, I don't know, 2000, in the 2000s, um, that I started saying like, oh, do I want to do this play? Right. Um, um, and I do remember this because you were also, your relationship was starting to solidify. You were starting to move towards marriage and how that was going to fit in your life and how theater was going to continue to fit in life. That was an interesting period. Yeah, and I think that when we, you know, when we look at like the whole totality of our life, you know, we make certain sacrifices to do theater, right? And yep. our, our personal lives take hits um, as well. So like they had to be, and the roles were getting better and I started working with the Aurora um, and I had a really good relationship with the Aurora and I felt, so I started working, especially with Josh Costello, just like getting kind of, you know, um, roles that I didn't normally, wasn't normally getting read for. And I started to realize like, I get to choose what plays are interesting to me. And I actually turned down a couple of things that, um, you know, that also sometimes all the auditions and all the offers come all at the same time, right? Right. And you get to decide, okay, I can't do everything. So what is, what I really want to be doing? What am I really going to go for? Um, and then there were directors like, I want to work with that director. I'm going to work really hard. And I didn't get it, you know, but I think that you have to know that, yes, you have the ability to say no. Your career will not end if you say no. Right. You know, if you have a gut feeling this project is not right for you and the universe has been very good to me and a lot of projects that I didn't get into ended up being things I should not have been in and I dodged a bullet, right? Right. Um, that's always a nice feeling. <laughs> super grateful for that. Um, you know, but I mean, everything else I was supposed to be doing, could have been doing this summer um, is canceled. The one thing I chose to do, because I was like, this is going to be, this is going to be important. And this is going to be the challenge is where I'm supposed to be. 
Yeah. And, but you do have to start to look at like, do I want this? Do I, you know, sometimes you get into situations where you think, oh, I wasn't sure about this and it turns out to be amazing. And you learn mm-hmm. so much and you grow as, as a human being um, in immeasurable ways, but you have to be willing to walk away probably not in the middle of a process. Um, right. <laughs> don't jeopardize your fellow actors. Yeah. But, you know, before to say, to ask the right questions that you need the answers to. Yeah. I know when I'm directing, they're also auditioning me. I'm showing them that I am thoughtful and prepared and um, and that I work well with them, that I can direct them and that I can help them move towards that I have something to offer as well because we're in relationship. It is a collaboration. Right. Uh, you know, it's not just me. I do not, I agree, Norman. I don't have all the answers. Right. More brains in the room are better. And I want those brains that are excited, energized, willing, open to, to collaborate with me that I feel that spark. Um, well, we got to work on Dracula last fall and right. it was great. As sort of a relay, Elizabeth was out of town, so I sort of did some initial work, and then she came in. And I loved every one of my ideas that I saw come into fruition. I was thrilled about every one of my ideas that either disappeared or morphed to support the play. I was like, oh, I am so glad that this wasn't all about me trying to do this. Right. And it's hard. It's hard to let go of your babies when you have this thing that you thought you wanted and and then you have to let it go. I mean, I've definitely, you know, I joke about like Lear right now. Um, I started with an on outdoor, large stage, abstract production. Right. And then managed to switch to something that might've been a Zoom box production. Right. right. With the possibility of moving outside if we got through COVID nineteen. <laughs> right. right. Oh yeah, those hopeful oh, those days. Months ago, we thought those things, right? April. Then, it's going to be all done in April. Right. It'll be. We'll be finished by June, right? And then we realized we wouldn't. And then we moved into this other format, which has been really exciting. So I've literally in my head reconfigured the play like four or five times. Yeah. Change my ideas. So I had to, I actually had to grieve this very physical production I was going to do of Lear because I love physical movement. I love, uh, you know, abstraction. I love putting um, like gesture and, 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 and bigness on stage, right? And had this beautiful thing of this cathedral collapsing trees and like this whole vision. And I had to grieve that. And so like, that is a production that will get done someday. Right. It can't happen right now. And I will let it go. And um, and I had, you know, and then to like keep transforming, oh, this, oh, this. And then we have, you know, George Floyd is murdered and we have protests in the streets and I'm feeling, um, up, you know, angry and, and grieving and uh, paralyzed to a certain degree because of COVID-19 and not mm-hmm. wanting to get sick and be, you know, running the streets, figuring right. out, trying to figure out how to access. And that infuses itself into the work. So it's been this ever evolving, um, you know, vision that we had to like, I had to keep changing, you know, mm-hmm. um, along the way. And, you know, it's exciting. It's interesting. It requires flexibility. Um, but it's also 
like it's important to pay attention, right? Yeah. And to be able to let go of your babies in order for like this other thing that is much stronger to like to come through. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting what you the directors and I was going to ask you whether you enjoy acting or directing, but directors knowing what your limitations are, you may have one vision and all of a sudden usually it's money. It's like, oh, we don't have the money to do that. And it's like, okay, well, I guess I can't do that. I mean, I've been one of my one the fun. I don't. It's funny to me, but you know, we um, this is when Mike Ward, the late Mike Ward, uh, ran ISIS Arts Collective, and he was doing a series of plays by a series of directors. And the tech had to work with all of the directors. And when we got through during tech, people were yelling at each other. It's like, listen, I want the light to be right there. And you know, the lighting designer was like, well, no, because we didn't need the light right there because of the other production. Right. And no one wanted to work with one another. And there were tears and there was this mm -hmm. and that, not knowing how to work with the limitations. And you're absolutely right, Elizabeth. I mean, all of a sudden COVID-19 happens and your vision is gone, so you have to let it go. And it takes talent. I mean, I, I wouldn't know how to do it if I were a director. You know, it's like, okay, I had this vision. Now I've got to switch and go to another vision. So what you, Norman, you and uh, Elizabeth have to go through as directors, even during Zoom, like, you know, Norman, you had your experience with Maddie May just yeah. recently and having to change things. And usually it's with actors. Let's say yeah, you no, have one actor. Yeah, go ahead. If, if you let limitations if you let limitations limit you, you're making a mistake. If you use limitations as a springboard to what creative thing can I do that tells a story that works to make the production happen. You know, I love being in a space where I'm like, wow, this space is not what I expected. How can I make my show work in this space? Instead of going, oh, how can I make my vision work in this space? I'm not going to fight the space. I want to use the space. Yeah, limitations are opportunities, right? Yeah. Limitations are opportunities. We've worked, I mean, Norman and I've worked on low budgets for, you know, oh, yeah. years and years and years and years. And, you know. We walked by Circle Arts last night. Oh. And I was like, that was one of the first production spots for Oakland Public Theater. Yeah. I was like, ha, 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 back in the day. Right? And, and it's like, so those limitations are like, well, what can we do with what we have? Yeah. Not, not what don't I get to do? I mean, yes, of right. course, there's always things you're like, you know, you've we've all seen really really sad productions of things that had huge huge budgets right right and yes then we've seen brilliant things that had no budget you right. know oh yeah so what are your opportunities that's that's what i like to think i'm about. worried we're running up against the clock that's all right yep <laughs> yep uh, uh we can go into i was going to ask you do you enjoy um no, here's the last question. What do you tell, um, as a teacher, what do you instruct, you know, what would be one advice that you would give to young actors coming into uh, the theater? Oh my God. Um, uh, What's your graduation speech? <laughs> uh, what is my graduation? You have a gift that nobody else has, no one else can be you. So, bring you to the space and then do the work you need to do in the space but don't be afraid to bring yourself to the table um yeah because you are uniquely you have uniquely something special that that director may need in that moment whether they know it or not <laughs> whether they know it or not i think we always think we need to be somebody else 
in order to get the job or be better or be just really bringing yourself and then doing the work. Those two things um, are really special, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, show up yeah. ready to collaborate. Yeah. Ah, nice. And also know your value, you know, as an artist. Your value, yes. Yeah. You know, don't come in apologizing, but just right. coming like, I'm here to offer you something. I always tell my students, I said, every audition is a performance, right? It's mm -hmm. not an audition. It's a performance. It's an opportunity to share this beautiful thing that you love to do with a group full of people who may or may not have ever seen you before. You know, it's an exercise in performance, not an audition. And if you treat it like an audition, you always feel like you didn't do a good job or you'll always be worried or you'll always be thinking about, did I do this? How come I didn't get it? Did I do that? You'll be second guessing yourself. But if you say, I gave everything and I gave a good performance, and if you can walk out of there proud of what the work that you did, then, then that's, that's how you need to feel at the end of an audition. Mm. There you go. Right on. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we yes, right. We've hit the one hour. We've gone beyond the one hour mark. Well, we're we're <laughs> past the hour. Shout out birthdays. Okay. Uh, thankfully, folks, we're not whatever that season was where people were having a lot of babies. This week didn't get too big. <clears throat> uh, Karen Amano Tompkins, who um, was uh, one of the co-founders of Thick Description. Uh, people don't know Thick Description unless you've been in the Bay Area for a long time, but. Uh, they were the folks that created the Thick House, which is now called Potrero Stage. And they, they were a very amazing small theater company. So Karen's birthday is today. Chad Jones, who used to cover theater and now has, I think he still keeps, I think he has a theater podcast, but he actually works with a uh, gallery now in, uh, it's on the backside of Potrero. Um, John Wesley Burnett is an actor I know who does a lot of improv. I forget what they're called, The Futurists, I think. Um, Tasi Albastro, when we first started the Yay, I wanted to get Tasi on because he does some amazing stuff. And I, I've only worked with him, we worked on Buffaloed. Um, he was, a, I don't remember what his role was officially, but he was this wonderful liaison to community and, uh, and an amazingly funny talent in and of his own. Uh, Don Fricke is my high school theater teacher. And so this is a weird year. Somebody I went to school with took over the department and has run it for all this time, and she has just retired this year. So I just saw a post from her yesterday. As one of her last official acts, she got to give the school secretary an honorary membership in, um, in the uh, thespians. So, um, but Don Fricke was my teacher, and there's so much that I do that I think about in terms of directing and teaching because of him. Mark Williams is a Bay Area actor, got to work with when I did um, Banyan, Jeannie Baroga's Banyan up in the North Bay. Tracy Ward, somebody Elizabeth and I both worked with, amazing Bay Area director. Um, Alan Gavin, who started Bindlestiff, not Bindlestiff, I'm sorry, Brava. Um, and which has now become this amazing organization, but Ellen was the one who really got that moving and helped them get the building was her last official act. Paul Silverman is somebody I think Elizabeth may have introduced me to. Paul Silverman, we did, uh, we worked at SF Shakes together. Yeah, Paul Silverman's birthday is this week. And last one I have is Donna Clark, who I, another high school alum who, you know, I know from theater way back in the day. Those are mine. All right, mine is uh, pretty quick. Barbara Michelson Harder, she is the uh, second half of Off-Broadway West. 
a company that unfortunately folded, but uh, they were very active, especially at the uh, Phoenix Theater, um, which is owned by Linda Ayers Frederick. And uh, Barbara handled the, uh, the, she handled the business part of it, but you know, she's also a great actress in her own right. And nice. uh, her birthday was yesterday. Also, uh, Dale Albright, his birthday was three days ago, and he is a part of a TBA. I forget what his title is there. Uh, company and member, um, like liaison something. I forget what the actual title is, but he's, he's the community outreach person. Yeah, for TBA. And also, yeah. he's a great actor and director. I, and director, I, yeah. Yeah, I was on stage with him when we did Skin of Our Teeth. And so his birthday was uh, three days ago on July the 29th. And I think uh, Sean Landry, I've talked about her. She and I were on stage. We did um, um, the ISIS Arts Collective uh, Summer Shorts. Uh, that was a protest against George W. Bush. Back in the days when George W. Bush was the worst president, you know. Right. Says, hold, my, hold my drink. Anyway, uh, Sean Landry, oh, wow. she's a wonderful comedian. She's in L.A. now, and her birthday is August the 3rd. And the last, uh, Jesse Moore, he's a young actor. Um, and he, uh, he participated in, um, a reading, uh, Four Men in Paris. He's part of the, uh, the collaboration to sort of build the play. Oh, up. right. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So he, his birthday will be August the 4th. And do I have one last person? Uh, John Warren. I think you brought it's John. It's coming up. Yeah. I, I, yeah, his is coming up. He's yep. a big one. Yeah. That'll be uh Saturday. And that is it. Um, there are no shows. I well, Elizabeth's got some. Yeah, go ahead. Can I throw a couple in there? Um, I just wanted to throw out to uh, Sophia Martin, who was an actor who used to be in the Bay Area, and she now lives in New York. Oh. Um, we worked together uh, word for word years ago. And um, uh, uh, Lauren Spencer just had a birthday. Right, last week. Yeah. So, um, so three days ago. So shout out to Lauren Spencer. And if I may, if it's okay, um, there are a couple of people who have passed. Um, Lisa, oh, please, yes. Lisa Lacey, who's a more Sacramento-based actor um, and educator. Dynamic African-American woman, uh, advocate. Advocate, um, beautiful soul, passed away um, last week. And um, so just shout out to her family and um, sending them lots of love. And my uncle passed away um, on Monday. Um, oh, was wow. Milton Douglas is um, my uncle Skeeter. And he was the person who, um, he was cousins with Ruby D. Oh, wow. He actually lived with Ruby D and her family in New York a little bit when he was a kid. And literally was one of the things that stuck in my brain when I was a young person was like, I'm sort of, sort of tentatively related to Ruby D, even though I'm not really, it's through marriage. So like, not really, but in my head, that was all I needed was to say like, somehow I'm connected to Ruby D. And so therefore it is possible. For so young folks shout out to my uncle Skeeter. Yeah. Young folks don't know, uh, you know, you research Ruby D and, uh, oh. her, I'll get her husband. I, uh, I Ozzie Davis. Ozzy, of course, Ozzy Davis. Yeah. Just a wonderful, wonderful theatrical couple who's been around. They're both dead, of course, but you know, they were, I think the last thing I saw them in was uh, the Spike Lee movie, Jungle Fever. Yeah. But you know, they yeah. were rich. And they were both a huge activist. They were, right. they were, they were um, people who behind the scenes got 
they were in the process with um, Sidney Poitier and Raisin in the Sun to getting um, uh, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X to sit down and talk together. Wow! Um, wow! Days before they were on their way to like figuring out the date that they were going to sit and talk together, and then King was shot, so um, was assassinated. So, so they were movers and shakers behind the scenes, believing in the movement from the very, very beginning. Um, and um, so they were activists and they were actors. And I just think that that is like a beautiful place to kind of be in this world right now. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. One last thing I want to uh, push. Uh, Bindle Stiff is having a fundraiser. It's called OK Batayo. There's a wonderful, um, he's a theater person. I'm not, uh, he's a director, uh, but he's mo mostly a tech person. He's sort of been in part of the theater, the, the uh, Bindle Stiff community for a while, Ed Mabasa. He was recently hospitalized. His medical supplies dwindled in the shelter. In shelter. Uh, he's an individual who's been hit really hard by COVID-19, not affected, but I mean, as far as job status and rent and all of that sort of stuff and, and his medical status. And so Bendelstuff is having a fundraiser today. It'll be at 7 to 9 p.m. PST. We'll have a link. And uh, if you want to give to donate um, to Ed and you know, I know it's part of the Philippine theater community, but really it's a part of Bay Area theater community. I think we're all brothers and sisters and we're all trying to help each other out. So, yeah. anyway, okay, Batayo, I'll have the link there. It'll be uh, some skits of the Grady Kant Gangsters will be there, the Geek Show, QAF, Forbidden Future. They'll have all sorts of, you know, little skits and things going on. Uh, Benelson has built a wonderful online community. They sponsored my little one-act play, um, um, which was the... Um, Oh, shucks, I'm, I'm tongue-tied. I'm <laughs> tongue uh, but in any case, I had a one-act play, and they sponsored that, and so I want to thank them for sponsoring my, me. And so I invite everyone to see OK Batayo. That's today at 7 p.m. PST. That is it. Elizabeth, I hope you had a wonderful time. I did. Thank you so much for having me. It was, like, fun to just talk and go all over about lots of different things. as well. Yeah, yeah. a long time coming. I know, I know. We finally got to be on the show, and uh, yeah, I wish we had more time. But uh, no, this was wonderful, wonderful. We can have another visit. Let, let me know when. I'm always happy to show up. <laughs> Fantastic. All right, well, folks are watching this already on YouTube. Uh, please click subscribe and uh, like. And, or if you don't like, you know, you can put comments on to let us know, you know, how we can improve the show. Uh, many of you are listening to this uh, via your podcast app. Uh, if you are an Apple user, uh, you can click on the podcast app to subscribe to the Yay. Or if you're an Android user, you can use the uh, SoundCloud app or just go on soundcloud.com and you can find us. The Yay was created by theater people for theater people. If you have a show you want to advertise, if you just want to advertise yourself, let us know. Hit us up on Twitter. Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook. I'm at Red Space Clay. And I'm at Hoosier Hoosier. Elizabeth, do you have any social media that people can directly connect to you? Um, I'm at Boo Lizard on Instagram. And that's pretty much all I do because I'm not very good at it. <laughs> <laughs> Boo Lizard? Boo Lizard. Yeah. E -O -O. yeah. Yes. All right. We'll have, we'll have a link to that. Yeah. All righty. Well, everyone have a wonderful weekend. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Keep your mask on. And as we always say, we got to find a better sign off. And we are out. Yeah.